What's up, guys, gals, and non-binary pals? This is your host, Chris Sims. Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. Once again, we are digging deeper into the archives of the uh, older episodes. And this one is a super interesting, super important episode that I was very happy to revisit. So thank you, Kat McLeese, for reaching out on Twitter. I am so happy that you uh, brought this back into the world. And if anybody else has... You know, uh, requests for uh, podcast topics or questions, always feel free to reach out to us. So yeah, today's episode, it's about queer archaeology with Megan Springate and Chelsea Blackmore. And uh, as we've gone through some of the archive episodes, uh, some have aged quite well, like this one, and some have not. And this one is one that I would love to revisit. So if any of you have uh, research on queer archaeology or are queer archaeologists, hit us up. Uh, you can email me at Christopher at GoDigAHole.com or find me on social media as GoDigAHole. All of our hosts are part of the Facebook page, so um, I'm really looking forward to bringing in the rest of the, the crew, uh, Kirsten Lopez, Katie Tipton and Tia Cody. So uh, look forward to more new episodes coming soon. Uh, we've got a lot of really cool ones lined up in the hopper. So, uh, you know, we're back at it with a renewed energy and uh, hope you enjoy this one. Today we're going to talk about queer archaeology, queer theory, and why it's important. Uh, today I've got two special guests on the line. I've got Chelsea Blackmore. Chelsea, how's it going? It's going well, thanks. And I've also got Megan Springate. Megan, how's it going today? Good, Chris. Thanks. Nice. So, um, Chelsea, could you give us a brief background on where you're at and what you're working on? Sure. I'm an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and I'm currently working on a couple different projects. Uh, one is a book project on uh, prehistoric states and queer theory and feminism, and uh, my actual uh, uh, new archaeological project that I'm starting is in southern Belize. It's a uh, excavation and survey of uh, historical sites in southern Belize. Awesome. And uh, Chelsea, I met you at the last uh, Maya at the Lago conference, which is Correct. In North Carolina every year. And um, right. so it was a pleasure to meet you. And it was great to learn about uh, your work there. And I was really impressed with how much queer theory played a role, like such an important role in work on the Maya, but also the work of all of the colleagues presenting there and everybody in attendance there. So that was, that was kind of my introduction to queer theory's role in mm -hmm. studying the Maya. Um, so that was really neat. And we can talk more about that, uh, further on in the, in the podcast here. Sure. Um, and Megan, how about you? Let's, let's hear, uh, what you're up to and what your background is. Sure. Um, so I'm wearing a couple of hats right now. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Maryland in the anthropology department. Uh, and so I'm working on finishing up my dissertation 
And I also work for the National Park Service as interpretation coordinator for the Cultural Resources Office of Interpretation and Education. Um, so although I work for the Park Service, uh, not speaking as a as a Park Service person um, in this interview, and uh, so the, the views and opinions that I have are not necessarily those of the National Park Service. Very cool. And um, so to start off, before we really jump into uh, what queer archaeology is. I've got a few quotes from one of Chelsea's papers, and this paper um, I found on academia.edu. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes on archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash go dig a hole. And if you happen to find the podcast on social media, it, it'll have the links for all that there. Um, but the, the paper is called How to Queer the Past Without Sex, Queer Theory, Feminisms, and the Archaeology of Identity. And the first, the first quote that um, is a good introduction and starting point to anybody not familiar with this is right there in the abstract, and it explains roughly queer archaeology in a, in a nutshell. And so, uh, Chelsea, you said, a queer archaeology is often equated to looking for ancient homosexuality. As a challenge to heteronormative practice, queer theory instead provides a framework for engaging with all aspects of identity formation and the processes and behaviors that mediate it. And then you go on to say that one, queer theory's relationship to feminist practice and archaeology, and two, its application to the construction and production of difference among ancient Maya commoners. Um, those are the two primary points that you cover in this paper. I, mm -hmm. Would you say that that's broadly applicable to other applications of, of queer theory and archaeology? Well, it, it, it began, I mean, really the kind of concept of, of queer theory obviously came from outside of archaeology, as, as a lot of our kind of theoretical uh, points of view do. Um, it... You know, it the the idea of using queer theory or thinking about things like gender, sex, and sexuality um, in terms of archaeology really began kind of in and around with um, the advent of the fe feminist archaeology. You know, uh, McConkie, um, Joan Jarrow, and others. You know, Rosemary Joyce, um, and then the queer part of the equation kind of came in with archaeologists like Barb Voss. Um, Eleanor Casella, uh, Mary Weissmantel, and others who were kind of looking at these discussions around gender and sex, much like it was done in other disciplines and questioning whether or not um, we really understood sex and sexual relationships. Um, and so it really began as kind of an archaeologies of sex and sexuality. And then queer theory kind of became a, a way to consider all of that, but also just to consider what isn't normative, what to focus on those things that societies um, consider uh, dangerous or immoral and kind of question the contexts of those situations. That's great. And you also have a comment uh, here in the introductory part of the paper that uh, earlier, quote unquote, ad women and stir models have given way to research agendas that recognize multivocality of gendered identities. And I really love the, the ad women and stir uh, phrase to refer to that because uh, like this isn't a criticism of, of early feminist theory, but so much as... <laughs> 
a criticism of, I think, um, archaeological theory as a whole that was happening, I, I don't know, in like the 60s and 70s that were still quite binary and were still having a hard time accepting multivocality, as you say. And so they're, they're not very nuanced. And so I think uh, if, if I'm getting this right, queer theory as it stands now is is really helping to bring more complexity and nuance and more of the human variable into studying you know human behavior even beyond uh like sex and sexuality yeah i mean i think i think a lot of different things have i mean like any theoretical perspective we have to realize that it has a history and an interrelationship with all different kinds of strands of theory and owes a thanks to everything from you know marxism to to feminism to to post-processualism to processualism right without those things uh we wouldn't be able to you know kind of have these heady uh, discussions around complexity in the same way. Um, but the, I think the point of queer theory is that all the things are tied into ways that people, you know, that gender, sex, and sexuality are tied into all facets. So they're tied into the ways in which people politically organize, you know, their world, their families, um, how people interact with one another. They're interrelated to class relationships. So I think that's the, that's the point is that, you know, queer theory comes out of this perspective of questioning kind of a heteronormative, straight, white um, perspective of the past and says, well, that's not the only one if that in, in and of itself was actually a real set of categories. Yeah, it, it, I think in a way it, it goes a long way to decolonizing, uh, I guess if you could call it, like decolonizing archaeological theory and kind of breaking apart the, you know, heteronormative binary and e even like, as, as you had said, a reference to Marxism, kind of breaking apart these kind of capitalist binaries that we're sloppily applying in the past to the past cultures. And so, uh, you know, like we had said, we're moving into more and more complex uh, human behavior and interaction here. And, uh, mm -hmm. for anybody who's just starting off in archeology, span I think that, um, queer theory is an important starting point, um, cause it's going to skip a lot of, uh, the growing pains of archeological theory and start to work through that. But also it'll give a better and richer understanding of past cultures in ways that you know, are often difficult. Like you, you can't apply, you know, cultural values and, and economic and political systems from 2017 uh, to, you know, the ancient Maya or any other culture for that matter. Yeah. And some people would argue then how can queer theory be applicable? But that's the very point of, of for me, at least, you know, when you, you queer something, you try to figure out what the, the context is. Um, and you try to invert it on its head. So we can't look for ancient homosexuality because that category, you know, wasn't around until the last few centuries, you know, so we have to put it within the possible um, context, you know, of the society. And that gets harder because, you know, these, these kinds of things don't clearly, you know, they don't just magically, uh, show up in the archaeological record clear and concise you know yeah um 
Let's see. We've got, we've still got about five minutes before I'm going to pause for a commercial break. So, um, Chelsea, I think it's interesting to use queering as a, as a verb. Could you explain kind of using it as a, as a verb? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, to, to queer something is to, to denaturalize it, to deconstruct it. Um, I really think of it as terms of, um, decon- uh, of deconstruction, really, of pulling it apart and questioning and um, placing the what's considered the not normal, the, the uh, other categories in a, in a position of privilege um, and, and just kind of upending things. So to, so to queer something is to, to basically screw around with it in, <laughs> in not so subtle terms, um, which, which I think, you know, as I think as academics and the way we think about things, you know, why shouldn't we, you know, mess around with, with ideas and concepts, you know, obviously within certain contexts, but you know, why, why shouldn't we think creatively and think about the different ways in which societies could have lived? Yeah. Yeah, I think this, um, this is Megan. So to me, I think queering is a, is a, a challenge as well. It's a challenge to um, how you think the world works, right? So to me, uh, queer archaeology also includes things like challenging the ideas of past and present and challenging the assumption that, um, you know, all cultures view time in a linear fashion the same way we do, or that there's some sort of real break between what is past and what is present, what is prehistoric, you know, what is prehistoric, what is historic. Um, And, and, you know, maybe those things do hold, but Mm -hmm. to queer it is a challenge and says, you know, prove it, you know, look at your data and tell me why you think it is the way that you think it is. Um, And, and opens up the possibility for, you know, all of these other ways of, of all of these other understandings of the way that the world can work. Yeah, I would even connect it to, to, this is Chelsea, to, to go off Megan's point is that it's also a political challenge. It's a challenge. Um, it's, it's, you know, what we're doing isn't necessarily that different in, in many respects from other critiques and criticisms, but to queer something for me is also a political challenge of making archeology span as as relevant and as inclusive as we can. I think those are great points. And one of the recurring themes that I try to work with on the Go Dig a Hole podcast and with my blog is doing work to build a more inclusive archeology. span And so the starting point for us on, on this podcast is for you know, early career archaeologists and for undergrads, but also as a whole, I, th- I think that the field needs to have that as even a stated mission statement. Um, you know, just that needs to be part of the operating procedure is, is you know, mostly to adopt queer theory in, in many ways. I think what we do is inherently political, um, even if it's quote unquote just um, to, to, help somebody through the permitting process if you're doing cultural resource management that's still um you know behind that process is decades of you know political maneuvering and and writing of laws and deciding you know what requires um 
permits that require archaeology and what doesn't. So I think even even um, outside of sort of the academic um, approaches to archaeology, I think it's still what we do is is political and affects our understanding of ourselves and the past. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I was going to say um, that the the inclusivity thing is important and, and I think most archaeologists speak to it but but we need to be much more cognizant and realistic of the ways that we actually include people um, and to and that requires a lot of us to think very deeply and you know identify our own privileges and ways in which we benefit from things like white supremacy and heteronormativity um, and how those keep certain groups of people in power, both, you know, within our world, within our discipline, you know, how it gives some people advantages and takes away. So it's, it's, it's also a matter of, of, of creating an inclusive archaeology that, you know, and it makes for a better discipline and I think uh, for a better science, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, definitely. So, Megan, where would you see um, a good starting point for um, undergrads or early career archaeologists to go to in, in terms of equipping themselves with the skills to work with queer theory in archaeology? Um, I think, wow. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I think. I, well, I think. Um, I think. I think there's some good uh, introductory stuff. There was a bunch of stuff done in queer theory, in archaeology in the early 1990s, and then it sort of um, laid low for a while, and is is really sort of starting to come back in a much more broader sense. So, in this more broader definition of queer archaeology than just just the archaeology of homosexuality. Yeah. Um, so um, Chelsea and Don Rutecki last, actually it was just this past January, um, uh, caught the issue of the Society for America, not concise introduction to both doing queer archaeology and what it is and how you can use it, but also what it means to be queer as an archaeologist. Um, because, you know, there's certainly uh, issues in being queer in the field. Um, and those issues are both positive and negative. Yeah, that goes back to your point that you had made earlier about how our work as archaeologists is inherently political. And so it's not just the work we're doing, but it's, it's the people doing the work. Absolutely. Nice. Well, so what would be a starting point then for the discipline as, as a whole to be more inclusive to queer archaeology? I think, um, I think really, so when, when you are, when somebody's, you know, doing their analysis or they're writing up their interpretation and they just very easily um, make a correlation between, you know, some evidence and an interpretation that just seems like it's obvious that they re that we really sort of stop and say, wait, what makes this what makes this an obvious um, connection, and and think really carefully about are there other ways that we could interpret this? Um, where am I getting this idea that this is an obvious connection? Yeah, I mean we still we still see you know we're 
um, for 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 those for those archaeologists who are in in undergrad or who are have taught undergrad, um, you know, we show these films about early hominid evolution, <laughs> and and we see we see family units of a male and a female and and you know two point four children and a fence and a dog, right? <laughs> um, and and well, we don't see these other possibilities of what family units are, and so there's this really sort of insidious projection of the present mm-hmm. onto the past without any proof that that's how it was it's just yeah. we just assume it yeah this is chelsea um uh yeah it's uh i i like to refer to it as common sense i know other people have um there's this you know just set of commonsensical notions because they're so like ingrained as being well like that's just how the world works um a really good book that's just come out um or well came out last year i believe is uh, Pamela Geller's The Bioarchaeology of Sociosexual Lives. Yeah. And she specifically uh, queers these kind of common sense notions about sex, gender, and sexuality, but specifically from a bioarchaeological perspective. Um, and, and it just made me think of that with, with Megan talking about these, you know, represent, uh, representations of hominids. Well, uh, and the, these sort of quote-unquote common sense projections into the past that we do are very white Mm -hmm. western middle class you know if you um, look at other family groups and other cultures around the world this sort of nuclear family is not a given Um, even even in the united states we see different family structures in in you know different ethnic groups and different um you know socioeconomic classes so it's a very heteronormative white um, middle class idea uh, projection that we're making. Um, and that's that's a problem because because that's not telling us anything about these past people. That's just reifying, you know, this white middle class reality. Yeah. Um, and that that's a real problem. That is a serious problem. Yeah, apparently just recently, and I, you know, I'm just, I don't know this for 100%, but um, from some news sources I was reading, I guess they've found some more footprints at uh, Latoli, and uh, so more than just the two that have been kind of part of that popular narrative of, you know, human bipedalism tracking through the volcanic ash. Yeah. Um, So, but apparently, um, at least some of the cursory things, I can't speak for the actual, you know, scholars who are looking at this, but some of the cursory interpretations are since one of the the footprints is very large and then the other, I think four maybe, are small. Um, Some of the cursory things I'm seeing within the popular media is that, oh, clearly this is a male with his four wives. Oh my God. (laughs) You know, maybe that's true, but why is that the first place we go? Yeah. Um, And what is this concept of wife? Exactly. (laughs) Let alone anything else, right? You know, know, whether, I don't know if they used wife, but mates, you know, um, what have you, but you know, who's, who's to say they're not brothers and sisters, siblings, cousins, a pack of people fleeing from a volcano, who knows? Right. And that goes that goes totally back to your point of just like, where's the proof? You know, like marriage is as much an economic transaction as a social one. And so, you know, to look at footprints in volcanic ash 
and say, okay, there was definitely like a socioeconomic bond here. Uh, nah, I'm sorry. We, we don't have that. Nah. Yeah. And when you put it, when you, when you like break it down like that, it, it sounds ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're know? assuming a family structure based out of a set of footprints, <laughs> if nothing else. Yeah. That's absurd. And, that, and, and that's, that's a lot to, to assume. And in that assumption, not only is there a family structure, but possible social as well as sexual and gender, Yeah. you know? Uh, all in one fail swoop based on the size of a set of footprints. And, and never mind that, you know, cultures, including our own, have more than one gender. No, really? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can take that out. <laughs> but, I mean, people don't think about it, but even in our own Western culture, we we actually have three genders. We have men, women, and children. Um, hmm. So... You know, even even you know, without getting into sort of the queer gender as a spectrum um, uh, ideas, which which are you know totally true, um, we we even even from our quote unquote binary perspective, we already recognize three genders. Yeah, and that goes a long way into acknowledging the sex gender sexuality nexus that is such a complicated thing and like you had said it's a spectrum across it's a culturally constructed spectrum and every culture constructs it in different ways and also has you know material expressions of that in different ways um and so that's you know, one of those things that's i think it's a fascinating problem to look at um in archaeology Right. And to, to, you know, and if we want to complicate it more, which I know frustrates the heck out of some archaeologists, <laughs> and rightly so, is, you know, if, if we're going to look at identities, we have to be constantly um, paying attention to, you know, what are the other things, you know, because when we talk about gender, sex and sexuality, we have to talk about race, we have to talk about ethnicity, and we have to talk about class, because those categories are not perfect, neat, little interchangeable packages. Um, they're, you know, sometimes fluid, they're sometimes structural, they're sometimes both, you know, and people deal with them differently at different points of their lives and different points of society and culture. Yeah. Yeah, as I like to say, intersectionality, it's a thing. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, deal with it. Yeah. Uh, and it's tough. I mean, it's hard when it you is. have to, it's really easy to say, well, I'm going to look, you know, it's if I just assume that it's a male, male or female or male and female, and these are male things and these are female things, right? And these are class things and these are, you know, religious things, Um that's those neat boxes are really easy to write reports around but when you start looking at how intertwined those are and how you really can't pull them apart um if you pull them apart too far you end up with nothing um it's you know those reports get more complicated uh and they're harder to write because you can't you can't say well here's how we talk about class one two three you know it's like well here's how we talk about class in the context of race and it just becomes much more nuanced um which is good yes but it is challenging to do i think that's one of the huge challenges of intersectionality in archaeology is is how do you do it i mean the theory sounds 
Fabulous. theory <laughs> sounds great, right? The theory makes sense. And it's like, well, yes, of course, all these things are intertwined. Um, but to actually take a data set, right? Take, take your, your research from a site and do that kind of intersectional interpretation um, is really, and not even just interpretation, but how do you plan your research questions and your excavation strategies around an intersectional um, um, model, it's, it's hard. And, and I think that's one of the big challenges in archeology span moving forward. I completely agree. And I was, I was on uh, the CRM archeology span podcast earlier, and we were talking about um, you know, a totally separate perspective of it, but we were talking about the limitations of the national register criteria for um, making a site eligible for consideration to, to listing and then preservation and all that. And I think intersectionality is one of those things that is a challenge that is overlooked, I think, by the structure of those kinds of laws. And so when you've got um, even the criteria for selecting a site as as eligible for preservation and, and study and funding and whatnot, um, you know, you've got these kind of structures in place where you're, you're saying, okay, it has to be an important event in history. Okay, well, then that means it has to have been written down in history. And, and who wrote history? Uh, well, that was, you know, it tended to be wealthy white guys. Um, and then important individuals, like if it's, a, if it's an artifact or site related to the work or life of an important individual. So then again, the question comes back around to, all right, well, who would that have been in history? Who, who got written about in history? Uh, right. Once again, we return to that. And so intersectionality, you know, but then you come back around to uh, Criterion D, which is, you know, just uh, it has research value. And so I think that's the that's the catch all that saves a lot of archaeology and, and, you know, prehistoric sites fall into that. But then also it it could let us work with uh, you know, LGBTQ sites. And I think for us to talk about, uh, Megan, your work with the NPS initiative on LGBTQ sure. heritage. Absolutely. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about that, Megan? Sure. Um, from 2014 through um, end of September of 2016, I was the prime consultant uh, for the National Park Service LGBTQ heritage initiative. Um, and, and those initiatives are coming out of the National Register and National Historic Landmarks programs, which are park service programs. Um, and they've recognized that there are groups that are underrepresented on the National Register and um, in the National Historic Landmarks programs. So um, there's, there are four initiatives uh, underway right now or, or very recently completed. One is the LGBTQ. One is Latino, one is Asian American Pacific Islander, and the Women's History Initiative um, are all sort of recognizing that. Exactly what you were saying, that, you know, these, these register issues um, and, and National Historic Landmark issues are, are um, you know, so many of the properties are about rich white guys, right? <laughs> um, and, and so how do we, um, so working to, to, to tell all American stories by, by increasing representation of these other groups. Um, 
And so when I started in 2014 to do the initiative, there were only five um, LGBTQ places on the National Register and as National Historic Landmarks. Um, and, and when the theme study was released this past October, um, after I started working for the Park Service, um, there were 10. Uh, including Stonewall National Monument, right? So it got a bump up from uh, National Historic Landmark to monument status. So even just doing the, having the initiative and working on the theme study um, encouraged people to start already listing and increasing the representation in those two programs. Um, the theme study provides a, a context, an LGBTQ context in American history. And it is designed to help people um, investigate their queer history in their communities and also to be able to place their local history into a broader, into just this broader context. And then in by doing that, be able to say, oh, this place is an important place. Um, you know, these places are important places. These are significant places. And let's look at uh, you know, what can we do with significant places? Well, we can nominate them to the National Register, right? So it's it provides the the sort of basis for for um, communities to work with their queer history and and by engaging with queer history, sort of these these significant properties um, that will meet the requirements of the register or the landmarks programs will sort of sort of come pop up to the top. Um, so it's it's huge. Um, we initially started with this idea of doing a chron chronological theme study, like you know, um, pre Stonewall, Stonewall to HIV, HIV to activism. Wow! And when wow. we we had a scholars panel uh, of twenty some odd scholars from across the country, and um, that that chronological idea died uh, almost immediately because that's a very white male middle-class urban history mm, yeah and so we sort of switched it to, to work thematically and i and um really purposefully took an intersectional approach to the theme study and it means the thing is over 1200 pages it's wow. huge I, i've it's seen huge. a copy of it you could you could brain somebody with it yeah you could um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's available for free online on the, the Park Service website. Oh, nice. I'll be sure to include a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah please do, because, I mean, as somebody, I had nothing to do with the, uh, the, the, the theme study, um, but as somebody who has read many parts of it, um, you know, uh, Megan did a wonderful job not only in organizing the authors, but also in... Um, uh, her own work, she has two really wonderful chapters on archaeological context, uh -huh. which I think a lot of your um, listeners would like, um, as well as things that are overviews, you know, such as intersectionality uh -huh. um, that uh, people may find very interesting. It, it really is a, a wonderful and solidly ethical document that I think um, is, is going to change how people uh, think about the National Register in history, I hope. Yeah, that's awesome. And I can't wait to share that widely on social media, too. Um, so what I'm curious, and I, I think a lot of my my listeners would be curious, too. How do you detect archaeologically 
how do you detect LGBTQ heritage and how, how are you, how are you identifying, um, certain sites as, um, significant to LGBTQ, uh, heritage? So, um, one of the, ch- one of the challenges is that there has not been a lot of work in the United States looking at LGBTQ archeological sites. Um, and I think part of that is, uh, is, is that people have not wanted to engage in it, particularly in cultural resource management. And let's face it, it's the CRM folks that get their hands on most of the sites. Um, you know, it doesn't end up in reports because they feel that it's a, it's a, it's a challenge, right? Yeah. Um, so people are not even engaging in the question. Um, but also, uh, I think, I think, I think the question of how does a straight site look materially different than a queer site? Right. It's a question, but to me, it's not a particularly interesting question. Well, it's not (laughs) the best question necessarily to ask. Yeah. So, um, what I, what I did with the archeological context was, um, instead of saying, you know, here are what queer sites look like, I looked at here are the questions that we can address if we know that we're digging on an LGBTQ or queer, you know, two spirit, whatever kind of a site, right? Queer in, in, you know, just, you know, letting, letting me push that back through time, even though this idea of being a homosexual is just since the, the 20th century, but, um, so there are there are things that we can we can study that are larger questions in archaeology. So we can look at um, gender, right? Uh, gender is not just male and female. If you look at even even in um, among women and among lesbians, there's a whole bunch of different ways of being lesbian, and you can consider those all different types of gender. Um, expressions, right? So the lipstick lesbian, butch lesbian, soft butch, stone, you know, all these different ways of being and all these different ways of being gay men is very, uh, or bisexual is tied into how that sort of gender and, and social role is expressed. And so, you know, we can think about gender more broadly by looking at these different sort of ways of that queer people express themselves. Or we can look at what is the difference between, or, or what is how does how does somebody live in the closet um, in their public life and be um, gay, lesbian, or bisexual or transgender in their private life? Yeah. And folks who are working in African American archaeology are already doing work on this sort of double consciousness idea of this sort of personal versus public. Um, lives and so people are doing this work already so um, those are the kinds of larger questions that we can we can get at by looking at LGBTQ sites that um, I think are much more interesting personally but are also more compelling to the field absolutely and I think it develops a much richer narrative of the past too which makes me wonder do you ever run into issues of I guess like outing someone from the past, um, would their, would their surviving family or descendants be concerned with that? Um, so we've been careful in the theme study to 
not label somebody with a label that they did not or could not or would not have taken themselves. Okay. Uh, which you, which sounds, you know, easy when you're looking back into the 18th century when the term, you know, you know lesbian or being a homosexual was not a thing, right? It was homosexuality was something you did. It wasn't something that you were. Right. Um, but even even more recently, um, Sally Ride, who was the first woman in uh, American woman in space, yeah, um, did not know that she was in a publicly did not know that she was in a relationship. We did not know she was in a relationship with a woman for like the last twenty years until her obituary came out, and she never took she never took the identity of lesbian or bisexual on for herself, and so to call call her that to to call her bisexual she had been married to a man or to call her a lesbian i think is is um it's a form of violence right so yeah. instead of labeling people um we talk about their behavior so we talk about her being in a relationship with her long-term partner of 20 some odd years who was a woman um, we talk about people in the past who had relationships with both men and women and and i know it's it's a it's a it's a difficult concept. I think there's people who argue for and against that, uh, particularly you look back in time and you, you assume people were straight and nobody has any problems with that. And so why can't we just, you know, call people, call people queer, call people gay, call people lesbian, regardless of what they would have done. Um, but I, I chose to take the sort of uh, more conservative kind of approach um, in the theme study. And there's definitely examples where people have, you know, burned their papers and uh, or their families have burned their papers to protect um, what they perceive to be um, something to be ashamed of. Yeah, I, th I think it's really interesting that um, kind of putting labels on someone is is a form of violence. I think that's an that's an important point that a lot of anthropologists and archaeologists need to keep in mind. Yeah. Well, and that's, and it's true. And it extends out, you know, not just, you know, beyond gender and sexuality, obviously. I mean, we have a long history of how we use, uh, names to name indigenous peoples, um, you know, uh, or race or class in, in the ways in which we approach kind of the categorization of things and objects and, and culture groups that we have studied and turned into these kind of objectified ideas. And those have all been types of violence. Absolutely. And there's so many parts of the world that are still dealing with hangovers of colonialism because of labeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, I think that that raises some other parallels to the creation of identity. So, Chelsea, could you tell us some about your your work on identity formation? Uh, sure. Um, what one of the things I've um, been, you know, I've spent a long time thinking about has been uh, the the categories that we don't talk a lot about and the way in which people do and don't have power and how that's formed, because those things are tied directly into um, how how society labels somebody and often how a person labels themselves. Uh, so for the ancient Maya uh, in particular. Uh, I've spent a lot of time considering uh, commoners, lower status peoples, uh, and thinking about how how there was more to them than just 
their class persona. You know, there was gender, sexuality, uh, probably other types of status that we don't uh, quite even understand completely, uh, probably ethnicity, uh, various and sundry things, religious affiliations, um, you know, kinship, all of these different kinds of things play a role. And so how, what, what for me, what queer theory has done is just to kind of let me think more expansively about what we assume about lower status peoples, you know, to really interrogate those assumptions about how society works, because the assumption, especially for a prehistoric society always in terms of class, is that lower status peoples have little to no power in society, that yeah. they have little to no ability to construct, to affect um, to to really do anything on a major governmental or political policy level. Um, and part of that is because we see them as being outside of things like writing systems and, you know, public rituals. Uh, but the very nature of kind of queering and reconsidering something forces us to to, to think a little bit differently about that. What is the exact nature of power and how do people even unintentionally kind of contribute to the daily changing um, of how, you know, political systems work. Um, there's a, I forget who the author is, uh, uh, but he's a scholar of Middle Eastern studies and I'm completely blanking on his name currently. Uh, but he wrote a book and he was talking about the politics of every day and the ways in which uh, people can force the government to do things, not through rebellion, which is often where we go um, for prehistoric societies, um, but just through the actions that kind of accrue and accumulate over time. For example, people you know, who don't have power will start stealing power from the state grid. And after so many people do it, Sometimes it's collective, but a lot of times it's just gradual groups of people doing this action that finally kind of impacts the state and the state has to respond. Um, and so right now I'm thinking about the ways in which um, uh, these intersectional identities uh, force people to to think differently about the world, interact with it differently, and then what does it say about power in societies like the ancient Maya? That's really fascinating, and I think that it it has a lot of um, you had you had mentioned this at the beginning of this podcast. I think it's incredibly relevant to current settings on how mm-hmm. uh, you know like identity. Uh, and various aspects of people's individual lives can collectively impact the state and change state decisions, you know, once it does impact the state. And I, I think that those are those are principles that we're going to be seeing a lot more as we see changes in centralized authority, changes in, you know, state encroachment into individual lives and then vice versa, individual lives and encroachment into you know, state authority. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there it's, you know, we, I, I feel like as archeologists, we, we, we travel this interesting path and we've mentioned it earlier. I think Megan might've said it, you know, uh, that on the one hand, you don't just want to apply categories from the present, you know, into the past, cause that's problematic. Um, but at the same time, that's also our perspective, right? That's how yeah. we view the world. So we're all applying some set of categories 
um, uh, to the past because that's the lenses through which we 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 view the world and the, the words and systems we understand. So to to queer something is to you know basically constantly question yourself and ask yourself you know is this applicable are there alternative models or ideas um uh to these and and that's partly what i'm trying to do is just to think along the lines that you know others have about you know how is you know how are people powerful in different ways in what ways do we see that represented today because i think it's important if we're you know Historic archaeologists are, I think, a lot better at telling stories that catch people's attention today um, and connecting it. And it may be the the, the shorter distance mm-hmm. um, in time, but I think prehistorians can do the same. Um, I think prehistorians, by thinking about, well, what were dimensions of class or gender or sexuality and taught, you know, like amongst the ancient Maya or Mesoamerican societies, how do these identities um, and how we as archaeologists, you know, kind of create them? How do they affect the way we talk about the same things today? You yeah. know? And I think, I think, I think <clears throat> queering, queering stuff, um, is not necessarily about having the answer. <laughs> That's true. What about yeah? Asking the questions. Excuse me. <clears throat> and you know, and 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 being able to and being okay not having the answers and and sort of rolling around the possibilities between the questions and the data and and to say, look, I mean. These could be a, a number of things, and here are the different kinds of things that happen if I look at these data in a different way, and 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 being okay with with like somebody who is genderqueer, being okay with not having you know an answer, you know, being okay with being somewhere in that that spectrum of of not one thing and not another. Yeah. Well, do you all have anything else that you'd like to add to the podcast? Because um, I think we're at a good point to start wrapping up the show. But if you have anything else that you feel like um, you'd like to cover, I'm, I'm absolutely happy to cover that. I just want to um, give a plug for the Queer Archaeology Interest Group at the Society for American Archaeology. Um, That's going to be a- this spring in Vancouver, right? Correct. Correct. Nice. And I'll be sure to add that to the show links. And also, uh, I had just thought of, uh, and this is how I got in contact with uh, Chelsea in the first place, was I sent a message to the LGBTQ archaeologist Facebook group, and uh, Chelsea responded to that uh, for me. And um, so if you're interested in that, check that out. Um, There's a lot of great uh, links and um, posts that come out of that that you know, keep us thinking about queer perspectives in archaeology. Um, and then... And the one thing I want to say about Quag real quick is that it is not just for queer people. Um, we would like allies, anybody interested in topics of gender, sex, and sexuality, um, even those who of you who aren't who are interested in being allies and helping to protect and mentor um, your LGBTQ colleagues and students, um, everyone's welcome. And I think it's important for folks to know that, um, cause I know being, being 
lesbian, gay, bisexual, or or transgender um, can be can be particularly isolating, depending on um, where you're coming from. And just like you're not alone in this field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you're definitely not alone in this field. <laughs> no, and please um, please do link the SAA um, uh, archaeological record that Megan brought up because I think that gives a lot of particularly younger queer um uh students uh a a place to think and a place to look at yeah definitely that was a great issue of the archaeological record too and um it had uh i remember specifically uh, a piece by jim amers um who Uh i've worked with in belize before uh that was also really good and so i have one last question uh, i guess to close out this episode you had brought up uh uh, allies being an important part what do you what do you see the role of allies being in queer archaeology like for for anybody who's not familiar like um you know what what do allies need to do to help build a, a more inclusive archaeology and make kind of safe spaces and and protective spaces for you know queer members of the archaeological community um is i think is to have have their backs and um, you know, even model that doing queer archaeology, archaeological research is, um, is okay. You know, you don't have to be queer to do queer archaeology. And um, I think, I think a lot of people don't do it because they're, they're afraid that it's not, quote, legitimate, right? So yeah. um, if we have allies who are in positions of power, um, your boss, you know, professors who talk about it, who do research, who ask the research questions, who, who publish, um, you know, that, that makes it okay. Um, doing the theme study with the National Park Service when I was contracting with them, um, you know, made it okay to write these nominations. Um, and, and nominations have come from, from queer people and, and allies. Um, so I think it's it's letting people have their own voice, yeah. But also and, letting them know that it's safe to do that. Nice. And part of part of the way you do that as an ally um, is to also listen um, yeah. and educate yourself, um, and you know, and and be okay with the fact that you know you may get called out on something. You know, like because again, a lot of our you know preconceived notions and prejudices are. <laughs> you know they're ingrained in us we don't realize them until somebody tells us otherwise so i think you have to listen and be willing to be open and be willing to 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 look inward to yourself and that's how you be a good ally yeah and i think that the willingness to learn and the willingness to face challenges and be corrected and, and change perspectives is a valuable skill as a whole as an archaeologist uh, to carry mm-hmm. on to other um, aspects of it. Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining the show, uh, Megan and Chelsea, and and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, thank Chris. you so much. Thanks for listening to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated and uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support so thanks again and please uh, share this with any of your friends colleagues classmates students 
teachers, whatever. Uh, you can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, the blog is godigahole.com. Uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at godigahole.com.